Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am pleased to welcome back for, I think, the the fourth time now, filmmaker David Weiner. David, how are you? Hey, I am back. Thank you. I, I like to make movies just so I can have a, an excuse to be back on the show, really. I'll take that. Any day of the week, <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, just to catch up, uh, any of the new listeners out there, David Weiner, you've, you've made some incredible films throughout the years. You and I first started chatting way back when you were working on what I call, well, the definitive documentary on eight 1980s horror movies, and that's In Search of Darkness, and subsequently In Search of Darkness Part 2. And mm-hmm. the last time I had you on was April of 2021, and we were just getting into the conversation. You were just starting the crowdfunding campaign for what I can now definitively say is the greatest documentary chronicling 1980 science fiction that I've certainly ever seen before, and that is In Search of Tomorrow. You were so gracious as to extend a uh, a screener copy for me to watch, Mm -hmm. and I was uh, chomping at the bit to see it. And I just want to start, before we even get going, I just want to say to you, bravo, it was phenomenal. So thank you. Thank Thank you. you for all, and the hard work is clearly on the screen. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where the money's on the screen. It doesn't go to the actors uh, or the uh, the Ewoks. The Ewoks didn't get all the money, you know, for their groomers or anything like that. But um, no, it's it's uh, this is a for those who don't know what In Search of Tomorrow is or In Search of Darkness. Um, these are love letters to a, a decade and they're super docs. They're they're four and a half hours for the In Search of Darkness part one and two. And we're working on part three as well. And so now with In Search of Tomorrow, I got to have a little extra time. And so now it's uh, just short of five hours. It's a five hour movie. Uh, And what we do is we go uh, from 1980 to 1989 chronologically. In each year, we cover a bunch of specific films. And then in between each year, there's another chapter in between each year that's sort of larger context topics and discussion. And uh, it's this is all uh, now in search of tomorrow, uh, geared entirely towards uh, the great movies that we loved uh, that came out during that decade and how it evolved and um, how special effects, visual effects, really sort of up the game in terms of the storytelling. And um, it's also a reflection of some of the real world things that we were experiencing during the 80s that really had an effect on the entertainment and escapist entertainment that we were uh, uh, in, indulging in during that decade. And it really it follows the same formula that uh, clearly works that that the In Search of Darkness films had and the way you just described it. So, you know, if you don't know the answer right off the he- top of your head, it's OK. I'm going to ask you. But. This movie is, as you mentioned, longer than the uh, the previous two films. How many movies are covered in this film? I stopped. There? I stopped. By the way, I stopped keeping count after <laughs> after 1981. <laughs> it's a mathematical equation to at least have a minimum of a, of five movies per year. Um, In Search of Darkness actually had a little more. Uh, this has about. Um, I should know, right? Because I made this movie. I think it's got about 53 movies where you focus specifically on the movies uh, or 54 movies. And um, and uh, but the thing is, when you say how many movies are in this decade of, uh, you know, this journey through the decade, there's there's hundreds, hundreds and hundreds, because there's uh, if we're not focusing on one particular film, 
you know, for example, like uh, Buckaroo Banzai or The Empire Strikes Back or E.T. The Extraterrestrial or Back to the Future 2 or I Can Keep Going. Um, the idea is that during the discussion, there's references to movies, you know, before and after the 80s and throughout the 80s that aren't specifically being focused on. Um, so if you like movies and if you like genre film, um, this is just, it's a cavalcade of, of imagery and references and discussion uh, that, that supports the specific movies that we do talk about. Again, drawing some comparisons between the In Search of Darkness films and In Search of Tomorrow, deciding which films were going to make, uh, I'll say, make the cut, make the, mm -hmm. the, the, the discussion. Was that more challenging in the sci-fi genre? Was it more the the actual interviews you were able to secure? What what went went into the the decision to to include these individual films in the discussion? It's always a tough one because I want to get eclectic and I want to get eccentric and I want to include the big movies, and they don't all fit. They don't all fit. Uh, literally, just in terms of you think with a five hour film, there be you could just fit it all. But uh, once you watch this film, you'll understand how you can't and that there's always going to be more. Uh, and so I kind of I really agonize over the choices about what stays and what goes. Uh, and, and, and even in certain years, you know, 1982, 1984 was a, a, a packed year of, of sci fi entries in cinema. And. You just have to say this is important because or this supports the story because or we have this talent to talk about it because. Um, and there are some real hard choices that I had to make to exclude certain films um, because it just uh, it, 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 it didn't fit for a variety of reasons. It's very, you know, like I said, I, I agonize over this stuff. But all I can say is that uh, I think collectively uh, this best tells the story that we're trying to tell. And, um, you know, maybe down the road, if this film does well uh, and if people demand it, we could do a part two. And, uh, you know, a bunch of the things that I'd already made in a rough cut that couldn't make it uh, due to our running time uh, limitations, believe it or not then, uh, you know, ideally we'll get a part two and we can keep on uh, exploring 80s sci-fi. And, and I think I mentioned this last time we talked that I consider myself to be a, a casual horror movie viewer. And one of the things I really enjoyed about the two In Search of Darkness films was it sort of opening my eyes to a, a number of films that I had not heard of or I had heard of but I hadn't seen. I consider myself to be much more geared towards the sci-fi genre mm -hmm. as a whole. So you can imagine my, my elation and my uh, like just how incredibly happy I was to see some of the, or, or in this case, all of the, the interviews that you were able to get for this picture. Uh, and the thing that really just struck me was the, the stories that, that were told by the people that you interviewed, like things that I thought I knew about some of my favorite sci-fi films, like some of the behind the scenes stories, which I, I won't get into, but I will just say that I, there was so many like aha moments for me or, Oh really? Or, pause for a second and sort of just take that in and you know can we talk just a little bit about some of the interviews that you were able to land and then i've got sure. some follow-up questions for that yeah uh you know one of the big challenges uh approaching this was i know being a sci-fi fan myself being a movie geek myself 
uh, I know that there are many like me who are cut from the same cloth and know, want to know everything about their favorite films and go to great lengths to read about it, to watch special you know, features, uh, just to know as much as they can. And, and that is definitely a challenge because one of the purposes of this film also is to introduce films that some of us know very well uh, to a whole new generation. Uh, and, and the key, the linchpin of this is really the talent who were there in these time capsule interviews. Uh, and when I say time capsule, I used to use it as a sort of a, a loose term, you know, because you can find some of these interviews elsewhere. But the thing is, these interviews are all special to us, unique to us. Um, it's a new recontextualization of these movies from the point of view of collectively telling a tale about a decade. And um one of the people who was in our cast uh, was Ivan Reitman. And, uh, you know, Ivan Reitman, as we all know, just passed away uh, unexpectedly. And um, we were so, so fortunate that uh, he was willing to be part of this project. He invited me up to his home in, in Montecito. And, you know, people might not realize, you know, they know that he's done all these wonderful films, but they might not realize that he produced Heavy Metal, the animated movie. You know, he executive produced uh, Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, you know, in 3D, uh, and, and in addition to, you know, Ghostbusters. So he, he's got a, a passion for this genre that I think people don't normally get to see him talk about very much. And that to me was very special. And, you know, we, we miss him. It's, uh, it's really unfortunate, but, um, you know, that he passed. But uh, at least we have the time capsule of, of his discussion in this film. And, you know, we got to have a real wide variety of talent, whether they were in front of the camera or behind the camera or experts about the genre, you know, actors, directors, writers, uh, visual effects masters, composers. Um, but we added a, a futurist, a, a psychologist, an astrophysicist, you know, some film critics um, to really kind of balance out the take on this very, very, very memorable and influential decade. And, and I will say that I was, uh, uh, if I could just have a shameless plug for a little bit of crossover, I was delighted to see Steve DeJarnett, uh in, in the film because he was a oh, guest yeah, on yeah, my yeah, show yeah, a couple yeah. of years ago. And I director of Cherry 2000 and Miracle Mile was, and wonderful guy. Yeah, I was I was so happy to see him in, in that. And uh, he's I mean, we've we've discussed this before. Miracle Mile especially is a a movie that uh, I, I really, really appreciate and, and, and glad to, to glad to have seen him in this film. And I'm glad you got an opportunity to chat with him. But, you know, David, we have to discuss, I mean, when, when talking about the making of this film, I, I can imagine the challenges associated with putting together a documentary of this magnitude. I can imagine the logistics that, that go into play. And, I, and the, you know, throughout my entire viewing of this documentary, I'm still... As someone who appreciates the art of filmmaking, I'm still just in awe of what it must have taken to put this together. But that's without the idea of there being a global pandemic happening while you were producing this film. A minor hiccup. A minor hiccup. So can you talk about some of the challenges that were associated with that and how you were able to clearly overcome those challenges? Sure. Well... It definitely delayed the delivery of this film. Uh, it definitely extended the production life of this film. And it extended the post-production life of this film to a certain extent as well, because everything took longer. 
Um, also, the people who are in this film, uh, a lot of them, listen, anyone, it doesn't matter how old you are, your health is the most important. Uh, and that is the priority. The priority is, is our talent's health and our production crew's health and my health and everyone involved. Um, we took that very, very seriously. But a lot of the, a lot of the folks who were in this film are also older, you know, and, and it, you know, so, so there were some people who were uh, a little more uh, willing to come out and, and sit down with us no matter what. Others postponed it or they said, well, well I could do it uh, via Zoom. You know, Dee Wallace said, you know, yeah, I'm happy to do this via Zoom after she agreed to do it, but we shoot this on 4K. And so there are some people who just said, you know, we just got to wait, just got to wait. But uh, you'll notice there are some interviews that are outside versus inside. And that's a very, very specific reason, you know, to have the airflow. You know, even if we were inside, we had lots of ventilation social distance and you know very beginning we were doing all the wipe downs and everything like that um it 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 pushed everything back but i think it also gave us an opportunity to get uh some more people that we might not have gotten uh uh as part of this collective cast of 70 plus uh you know very knowledgeable very energetic, very engaging individuals. And I know I've asked you this before, and you have interviewed so many people, but I have to ask you, with this cast of, of, of talent that you have in this film, was there anyone that you were, as you've, you know, an admitted sci-fi fanatic, this is, this is something you absolutely love, was there ever that time when you were meeting someone like, I I'm so happy I'm getting to meet this individual. And, and Over and over and over and over and over again. Although, even though I don't like to single out anyone because everyone uh, is of tremendous value to this film and to me personally, just like having someone, you know, pinch me and get to talk to them. But uh, part of the process of getting people to be in this film and shooting outside at a certain point, uh, I needed to find a controlled environment that was an exterior where we didn't have a constant uh, interruption of sound and so on and so forth. And I looked at a variety of places. And at the very end of the day, I was like, you know, my backyard is the best place to be. And so I had a parade of individuals coming to my backyard and coming to my house and using my bathroom and, you know, eating my food. <laughs> And, uh, you know, everyone from Adrian Barbeau to Alex Winter to Sam J. Jones to Deep Roy to Bruce Boxleitner to John Dykstra. It's all these wonderful names, you know. But this one particular individual, I think, is probably the one that really I couldn't believe this guy was sitting in my backyard. And that's Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Wars, Star Trek, Star Trek. Um, and because I've been a Trekkie, Trekkie ever since I was a little kid, you know, in the pre star Wars years, it was all about star Trek for me and um, have Chekhov agree to sit down and chat about the movies and life and the universe and everything and, and hanging out in my backyard. Um, what can I say? That's just, uh, I might have to put a plaque at the front of my house, you know, listing, you know, all these people who came over. That's incredible. That's incredible. And I just have to ask, you know, when you have this talent coming to your house, uh, 
is there any riders in place here? Does it, is anybody say you got to make sure you've got this food waiting for me? Does anybody have any list of demands or was yeah, it really Will casual? Yeah, demanded that I take all the green M&Ms out of the bowl. <laughs> and I thought that's a little obnoxious, but okay, well, I'm happy that you're in my No, that's not true at all. No, everyone just was like, I, I, I thought some people might be like, I'm not sure if I want to go to some guy's house, but uh you know, it's also like I said, all these other people have been here and, you know, this is the reason why we're doing it here because we normally shoot at a soundstage and so on. And um, no, no, everyone is just super cool as a cucumber showed up and we're happy to chit chat. And everyone was uh, a lot of these interviews were when people were finally just sort of coming out of their houses again and um, happy to socialize, you know. It's very cool. Now that's that's so awesome, and and I I just can't stress enough to to everybody listening here that the the information that I received from watching this this documentary was it was just it was amazing, and I I can't wait to watch it again. That's the thing is I'm super super excited about that. But David, I got to ask you. I mean, you, you you mentioned that you know due to the pandemic, you know this did delay production a little bit, and uh, there was clearly a few benefits that came out of that delay you said you got to you know eventually get some some talent on there that you 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 were hoping to get uh, when mm-hmm. did you when did you when did you lock picture like when was that moment when you said all right we're we're, we're done and let's start looking at the premiere when they pried it from my cold dead fingers that's when the picture was locked really um we premiered the movie on february 24th uh, so just recently, uh, to, uh, our producer level backers, uh, and they got to see it and that was very cool. So I really had up until that point to tinker with it, but it's really, you know, the, 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 the picture lock really was, um, you know, perhaps the end of January, okay. um, in terms of, you know, cutting this out and cutting that out. Maybe it was December. I, I now have a very selective memory. You know, I, I, I have like a memory like a goldfish with some of this stuff because in my mind, I'm tinkering with all sorts of elements, the sound mix, you know, the, uh, the, the coloring, the lower thirds, all the details of the movies themselves, just to make sure everything is properly credited, you know, determining what is the best running time that we're available, that's available for everything this. Um, so yeah, I, I wish I can give you a simpler answer, you know, but it really was only, uh, several weeks ago that this movie was really, really done. I had a, um, about five or six years ago, I had a, a documentary filmmaker on the show and I asked the same question about in regards to one of his films. And he gave me a very similar answer to that when he, when they, <laughs> he said that his producer said, all right, look, you don't have to finish you just have to stop working on it. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly right. So. That, all directors see a work in progress that has a deadline and then you finish it by the deadline. But is it a finished film? No, there you always see things. And with a film that's a five hour long film, you miss things or, you know, you see a, a you know, a certain element where you're like, no, oh, gosh, I've been overlooking this one particular shot. And I've been meaning to change it for so long, but there are so many other priorities and it's still sitting there. And then you have to say, well, is it is anyone going to care other than myself? But I care and I need to change this. So, you know, now's the time because I'm losing my my window of opportunity. Sure. And so, yeah. you know, it's 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 
it's the it's the bravado of of uh, artistic vision that uh, has to meet the reality of of deadlines and delivery and uh, somewhere in between, you know, you just got to you just got to do it. Let's talk just a little bit about the premiere, because, again, this was held in a theater in Los Angeles yep. in yep. Hollywood. Yep. Hollywood premiere, red carpet, all that stuff. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, this was obviously, you know, a year ago, maybe not even something that was going to be able to happen. Now it's happened. And and, and just tell me about that evening or that the day. Was or the day. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was a day because it's, 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 it's a long haul. We, uh, we had it basically as a matinee, almost like a double feature. If you think about it, because it's like the equivalent of two films. Uh, so we had an intermission and we did this when we were at beyond fest, when we premiered our in search of darkness at beyond fest in Hollywood at the Egyptian theater. Uh, we, we delivered it in, in two parts where everyone gets an intermission. So, um, 1980 to 1984, and then, uh, an additional chapter and then, uh, 1985 to 89 was part two. Um, it was just a real treat to just be able to be there. We had a, a Q&A during the, uh, the intermission. Um, it is still a, a COVID-era premiere. You know, we, it was, we were at a, this wonderful theater called the Harmony Gold Theater in Hollywood um, that does lots of really high-level uh, uh, industry screenings as opposed to a regular uh, uh, commercial movie theater. Um, we had a Q&A uh, uh, in the middle of it. Uh, Angelique um, Roche, uh, who's the host of Sci-Fi Wire and appears in our film, she moderated. Uh, it was myself. It was executive producer Robin Block. Uh, it was NPR film critic uh, Tim Cogshell, who's in the film. And it was Lance Guest of The Last Starfighter. And we all sat there with our masks on and talked about the movie and sci-fi and, and had a great time. And, and everyone was just happy to get in a movie theater. This, for me, was the first time I have sat in a movie theater in two years. Wow. Um, so I had to uh, modulate my comfort zone in terms of protecting myself and my family versus going out into uh, the world. But, you know, we all had to show that we were vaccinated to get in and uh, I felt very safe and so did everybody else. And it was just a, it's a magical thing when you're living in a vacuum, making a film just for yourself, essentially, and your editor and your team and no one else has seen it. And then you get to throw, you show it, you know, exhibit it. And now you get to find out what people think are funny and laugh and, and are entertained by and are moved by and gasp over. And uh, it's so, you know, there, there are certain things where I'm like, that's going to get a laugh and you get crickets. And there are certain things where like, that's got the biggest laugh. And I never expected it to get that biggest laugh. And it's very fun. Uh, it's a priceless experience, especially because this is really designed for, uh, you know, to hold in your hand and put in your DVD and Blu-ray player. It's not really designed for extended theatrical distribution. So uh, it's just a treat. Did you get the crowd reactions when the film, you know, there's this, there's, you know, for every movie, there's, you see several one sheets and then the camera sort of zooms in on one. Did you get that reaction People from the crowd? People start clapping once they, they figure out the conceit that it's either their movie or it's not. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, <laughs> in a, not in a negative way, but sometimes it'll land on a film and you hear one or people saying, oh, you know, because <laughs> they wanted the poster right to the left of it or to the right of it. 
you know, to go into that movie. And then you know, when we do get to that movie, people do like clap and so on and so forth. But uh, I think people were, were uh, generally very entertained by uh, uh, the, the talent in this film and the stories they weave and the tales they tell and these wonderful anecdotes. And, you know, Barry Bostwick talking about Megaforce, you know, gets lots of laughs. You know, Joe Dante, anything he says, he's so knowledgeable and he'll throw on throughout these off the cuff statements sometimes and people you know they just laugh because he's just wonderful and um it was very fun uh, nicholas very fun. nicholas meyer really stood out to me in in the, <laughs> in the <laughs> he's movie a, he's a he's character great. that was the ultimate get because he's i mean i i worship that that gentleman you know uh star trek 2 wrath of khan is one of my all-time favorite films not to mention you know time after time and a lot of his other stuff and so uh, I was so I was pleased as punch when he said, sure, when, you know, for our film. And he he delivered, you know, a TED talk during our interview. I mean, it was just perfect. And uh, he really is incredibly erudite and intelligent and self-effacing at the same time. And uh, part of the fun is hearing him be a little bit self-effacing uh, when he talks about some of the decisions that he made yeah. in some of these films that are all-time classics yeah no it's 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 something else it really is and I, I i i you know for the listeners out there and david how can they how can they get involved how can they see this movie i mean we're talking about it and i'm telling everybody right now this is a stop what you're doing and get your hands on this film so how can they do that right now it's all on 80s sci-fi doc.com 80s 80s sci-fi doc.com uh, all our socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook is at 80s Sci-Fi Doc. Uh, and you can get it from us directly. And so you go there and uh, you order it. If you do it now, between now and March 27th, uh, you get to have your name in the credits, which is a super cool thing. Uh, and then we're going to send it out to you. And you get a digital copy. You get... Uh, three exclusive posters of amazing artwork. You know, the, you get a DVD or a Blu-ray with a slip cover. There's a, a sticker pack. There's a variety of things. All this stuff is explained on our uh, site. So you just go to 80sscifidoc.com and find out. But uh, now's the time to do it. Uh, this is the only time you can get it. Yeah, and I, I will say, as you're listening to David and I chat right now, you can go to the show notes of this episode in whatever podcast app you're listening on, and uh, all of that information, all, all of the websites and social media links, they're all posted in this episode's show notes. So you can go to 80scifidoc.com while you're continuing to listen to us chat. So there's no excuse <laughs> right now. Um, Thank you. I think we sound a little bit like like an NPR pledge drive, but, <laughs> you know. But it, it's this is this is from a small company that does big things. Uh, and when I say big things, I'm talking about super docs that are long and informative and entertaining. Uh, at least I'm told by the audience that 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 does consume these things. And so, uh, you know, if you are a fan of of the, the the heavy hitters, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars and Blade Runner and Ghostbusters and and ET, um, you know, Back to the Future, or you like the more eclectic stuff, um, this is really kind of the movie to you. But for you, but uh, you know, I, I urge you to, to just tell your friends who love '80s movies because. This is more about uh, just as much about a decade than necessarily a specific genre. And uh, I think when you watch this film 
and you see some of the bigger context discussion, uh, you, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Absolutely. You'll, you'll, get, you'll get the feels. You'll get the feels for a whole decade, which is pretty cool. And it's one that, uh, you know, I'm in my 40s. And so that decade for me, I was, you know, I, I say my first childhood mem- movie memory was seeing Return of the Jedi in the theater as a five-year-old in 1983. And that decade has always been, I mean, that's the decade I grew up with. I mean, that was... Jo- Joey Kramer, who is in this film, he was the child star who's in Flight of the Navigator. He was also in Runaway, uh, is in our film. Um, He's also opposite uh, Gene Simmons of Kiss, uh, who's in our film as well, which was like a total coup to have Gene Simmons decide to hang out with us. Um, But Joey Kramer told me that he saw Return of the Jedi in the theater 23 times. 23 times. (laughs) And you know, whole generation that we went back to the movies over and over and over again because that was the best way to see it. Speaking of him, just for a moment, I mean, seeing Flight of the Navigator in the theater was it was a big was a big deal for me. That was like my friends and I got an opportunity. My parents took us to go see it. It it was it was amazing. And I I have to ask you, David, like, and I've asked you this when you're wrapped up in Search of Darkness Part Two. I know you 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 know we talked about a third one. When do you take a break? Because I know you're you're going to be doing a lot of promotions for for this film. When do you have like a set? I'm taking a week off and shutting myself off from the world and no. I'm currently taking a break during the Dana Buckler show. Uh, I'm somnambulating as we speak, and uh, this is currently an out of body uh, interview experience I'm okay. having, and and my corporal body is behind me taking a nap. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I get to do what I love. Um, And uh, I'm one of those people where when you get to do what you love, uh, you work a lot and then you take small breaks. Uh, But it's hard to have a set. I'm taking, you know, X amount of week or weeks off. Um, You know, sometimes I could build that in. Sometimes not, you know. Um, We got another movie that I get to make, and that's In Search of Darkness 3, and we're already in production on that. And so I'm balancing that while I balance promoting uh, In Search of Tomorrow. And uh, we're talking to so many cool people, and this is going to be, you know, a true deep dive. uh, If you didn't think the second one was a deep dive enough, this one is, you know, continuing to dig deeper. Um, When do I get a rest? Um, You know, I I find my little pockets of... (laughs) It's called the art of the micro nap. You know, I'm a dad. And when I had a baby, I was like, five minutes works for me. I'm just going to turn off right now. Like C-3PO. If you won't need me, if you won't be needing me, I'll just turn off for a while. And I just stop and nod and the eyes close. Let me ask, let me ask you this before we, uh, before we wrap things up, you know, you, you've done this tremendous feat and I say tremendous because I mean, it's just so expansive. And the idea that there's there's the possibility of a second one has got me extremely excited. But I want to know for you, David, I know you're a big Star Trek guy. What mm-hmm. were some of the other 80s sci-fi movies that really resonated with you in the 80s that mm-hmm. you were you were just over the moon about? Yeah, I've always been a, you know, a Star Trek and Star Wars guy uh, through and through. And, and I love so many of these movies. And it's so hard for me to pick. Um, and I will tell you, uh, I will give you an answer. But um, uh, a lot of these movies were, were sort of dependent on, was it 
anything like these movies that I held in such high regard. You know, I spent a lot of the 80s saying, you know, it doesn't have, you know, space battles, doesn't have, you know, uh, whatever, whatever the, uh, the the sort of the boxes that needed to be ticked. Uh, for a long time, I, I held it against, you know, the best of Star Trek and the best of, you know, the Star Wars franchises. Um, but I started to evolve because, you know, the storytelling was so strong. So sometimes a movie like War Games, which wasn't in outer space, but it's more like a what if sci-fi, really. Um, th those turn out to be some of the most entertaining films of the decade that I've seen because they, they stick with me to this day. Um, but I, I, since you're asking me to mention or pick or choose, I would say Peter Hyam's work, uh, Outland, uh, 2010, uh, uh, the, the sequel to 2001, The Space Odyssey. But Outland in, in particular, um, Outland is, is such a, a wonderful film because the attention to detail, the, the world building in that film is so amazing. I'm a huge Connery fan. You know, I could divide Connery from Bond and his other roles and just love Connery for Connery back then. Um, but I also felt like, and this is, I'm never, I'm definitely not the first person to say this, but it's something I, I, I immediately picked up on was that this felt like a shared world with, with Alien. Uh, yeah. You know, and the way with Utani and just sort of, you know, uh, blue collar miners in outer space on a planet. Um, you know, Peter Hyams picked up a lot of his uh, best ideas from from the lived in worlds of Ridley Scott and George Lucas and applied that to his vision of sort of a Western and outer space. And Outland, to me, I think is one of those films where you're either in the club or not in terms of knowledge of that film. And I highly recommend it. And I, I go back to it often just to enjoy it. And uh, I was so happy. I was so happy that Peter Hyams was uh, willing to be in our film and talk about it. And that was just a treat too. Yeah, no, then that's, that's one of the movies that it's probably been 30 years since I've seen it. And, and that's this, this, uh, this documentary in search of tomorrow creates it, for me, it creates such a call to action. It's like, Oh, I have to revisit that. Oh, like, Megaforce. I was like, I was like, you know, it didn't even occur to me. You know, I just did a, a, a little retrospective on Smokey and the Bandit and and Hal Needham's the director, and it, it uh -huh. you know, I, I hadn't even sort of put the two together, and then it was like, wait a second, Hal Needham did direct Megaforce, and he I need cameos to, in that too, exactly. As one of the characters. I need to rewatch that. I mean, it just, it really, it really has created such a fun call to action, much like uh the In Search of Darkness movies did. Well, what's very cool about this this set of movies is that uh, some of them age really well, and they really do feel timeless. Um, and some of them that don't age so well in terms of just the way they're structured or the story or the effects or something like that, um, they also resonate because they're this wonderful time capsule of the era. Um, Howard the Duck holds up better now than when it first came out and people had all different expectations you know george lucas uh you know producing it and so on and so forth you watch that now it's 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 the most entertaining hot mess uh, <laughs> in terms of story being kind of balancing family and adult humor not maybe so deftly but uh i i found myself you know incredibly uh impressed by Howard the Duck himself, played by Ed Gale, who also happens to be in our film talking about his experiences playing Howard. Uh, but I, I just thought 
back when that first came out that I was like, oh, this duck just looks like a guy in a suit. It's terrible. But what else do you expect? There was no CGI at the time. Yeah. Now you look at it now and you just accept it at face value. Uh, the, it's really good. It's really good. It's really believable. You just sort of go with it. And, you know, like it's this pastiche of 80s cliches. And but it's got these amazing effects from from Phil Tippett. You know, it's really really fun so yeah it's 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 enjoyable watching these films and, and, and coming back to them for a revisit and something you just said there mentioning cgi the last question i i had wrote down was like this is make sure you ask david this question because i don't want to end the interview without asking you you know the 1980s is represents the the, the last decade before the uh, i will say perhaps the the I don't want to use the term the onslaught of CGI effects but mm -hmm. certainly the introduction and the uh, you know it becoming mainstay in in filmmaking in particular sci-fi filmmaking so I I want to ask you and this is a very broad question so I don't expect a very specific answer but I'm just curious your thoughts on sort of the state of sci-fi today Mm -hmm. versus the state of sci-fi in, you know, the late 70s and, of course, the 1980s? Well, I've, I've always championed practical effects in the age of CGI. Uh, that being said, and also talking about revisiting these films that they, they hold up really well, uh, one of the reasons is because of the visual effects that are not CGI, uh, because they're, they're sharing the same space, if you, if you will, um, so whether it's a practical effect puppet that looks like a puppet, they're still sharing the same space. So you buy into the fantasy of Yoda or E.T. or the critters or whatever it may be, because you know that this is a real thing. Uh, there's something about our minds now that that are telling us whether or not something is there on screen or a bunch of ones and zeros. And, and you know, I have I have crossed over the hump of being against CGI that wasn't very good uh, because it's just the way things are now. And when I'm talking about now, I'm talking about like in in the 2020s now. I think CGI has advanced so far along now where uh, not only do they use full CGI elements that really are, I think, mostly believable, if not completely believable, um, they still use more and more practical effects now where there's a CGI sweetening. So there is that physical, tangible thing that's on screen and they just add some elements where you can't even tell now. It's almost a cheat for the practical effect because they use the practical effect and you can't tell because you think it's CGI, but it's a hybrid of the two. Uh, but these days, you know, I think like for, you know, you look at a Marvel movie or something like that, um, there's so much CGI in it, but I am, I am so ingratiated in the storytelling that I, I over, I just don't care anymore about the CGI like I used to, just because if I want to enjoy movies and this is what they're serving me, I either enjoy it or I reject it. And so I've just come to terms with all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but, but I, and I think, you know, one more element about it that I think is important is there were the baby steps and the, uh, the very awkward <laughs> teen years, you know, in a, in the course of a decade of, of the nineties and the early two thousands uh, for CGI, that was really just finding its footing. Um, you know, I'll say in a nutshell that uh some of these movies in the 80s, whether you're talking about The Last Starfighter, you're talking about Flight of the Navigator, you're talking about Tron, 
Um, they, they, it was the infancy, you know, the abyss, the infancy of uh, CGI. And so you could see where it's going. And it's very exciting, even if it might not look so great today. Whereas once Jurassic Park came along and just broke it wide open and everyone said, I need something just like that because those dinosaurs were amazing and so incredibly realistic. Uh, a lot of people mistook the practical effects that were done by Stan Winston, yeah. the full-size dinosaurs that he built that looked and moved really, really realistic, realistically with the elements that were CGI. And they just thought, well, it's all CGI now. And we could do that too. And then boy, were they surprised when they realized a, how expensive it was to do really good CGI and how it just didn't work. There was no weight to it. There was so much to, to, to fine tune over literally another decade to arguably two decades. Yeah. So that's a very long answer. <clears throat> Whereas I feel like we're, we're at a good place now with CGI. Yeah, you know? no, I'm, I agree with you. Um, I mean, just thinking offhand just this year, I thought Dune looked uh, looked pretty spectacular. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, uh, you know, but there was... I believe the those ornithopters were real. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. So I asked, I'm going to ask this question. I, uh, could 1986's Aliens be released as is in 2022 with no changes made? Yeah, because it's all about the story. It's yeah. all about the story. James Cameron will be the first to tell you that yeah, I I would do the Alien Queen CGI, yeah. you know, all these kind of elements that, you know, are a bit clunky, you know, that, I mean, there, there's there's one or two shots, maybe more arguably, where you know that they, they're, it's, you know, working against a, a matte painting, yeah. or it's a little bit uh, awkward, but uh, story through and through, you are there, you believe these characters, you're rooting for these characters, you're worried about everyone's safety, uh, you're at the edge of your seat. You're, you're biting what's left of your fingernails. Uh, that is a great story and storytelling. Um, I, I had the good fortune of, uh, of talking and interviewing with uh, James Cameron when I was with Famous Monsters for the 30th anniversary of Aliens. And at the time, he was very deep in, you know, Avatar sequel development. And uh, he told me that he would do the Alien Queen CG this time around. But the difference is, is everything needs to be based on a photoreal uh, source. And that's what a lot of people don't take into account. So he would, he would create the Alien Queen uh, out of a real practical model. Then he would, he would basically <laughs> use that as his, his massive maquette. Uh, to make it move uh, realistically and with weight and shadow and nuance and so on and so forth. So he, he's ahead of the curve in all sorts of ways anyway with understanding the benefits of CGI uh, as a cost-saving measure or as a freedom for storytelling measure. Well, he certainly was the, the, the champion of it in the, in the beginning, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess that means we're uh, – this is – you said he was an avatar – developments pre uh, sequel development uh by all accounts we're going to get this movie in december um uh, i mean yeah. we're talk about uh would you predict that we're going to see things we've never seen before i think i think james cameron never fails to surprise and impress and to prove most people wrong uh he's done it over and over and over with his career 
and whatever you might think about Avatar, it still made a boatload of cash. And uh, I think once people see what he's capable of and and the limits of uh, boundary pushing that he, he crosses over, we're, we'll welcome a bunch more Avatar movies. He told me at the time, which was also very cool, he kind of revealed some stuff to me because he was a big fan of Famous Monsters. So he's like, here's another scoop for you. So that was pretty <laughs> cool back then. But um, he was the one who told me, I, I was the one who got to break the news that they were doing all these uh, uh, sequels, but they were all shooting concurrently as opposed to back to back to back. So he was talking about it was one of the most challenging uh, shoots ever in his entire career because everything that he was shooting in the morning, he'd be shooting, you know, Avatar 2. In the afternoon, he's shooting Avatar 4. And then the next day, he's doing Avatar 3 and back to Avatar 2 again. And he's just got to keep it all in his head. Uh, in terms of the scheduling, just to make everything, uh, you know, maximize the potential of whatever setups they were doing. And um, the guy is a genius, and I know he'll entertain us, and we'll all be talking about Avatar, even if we're, it, it, some people like to make fun of it right now. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to side with everything you said there, so <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So uh, one more time, for those listening, they want to uh, purchase uh, In Search of Tomorrow, which I strongly recommend they do. It's incredible. They go to, as you said, 80sscifidoc.com. That's right, 80sscifidoc.com, or you go to our socials on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at 80sscifidoc. 80s and uh yeah you know that'll take you to the site between now and march 27th that's the time to get it and uh you get your name in the credits you know if you have if you have a certain podcast you can put your podcast name if you want exactly you can anything you want you can put you can put your dog or your beloved you know spouse whatever you would like to do and um I think uh, if I could say one thing about this movie, uh, the the reviews of the people who have seen it so far have all uh, really responded to the emotional nostalgic element as well as the informational element. And so uh, I think people are really connecting to this in a very different way than the In Search of Darkness movies. And it, it really, it, it just makes me so happy. Wow. And, uh, you know, spread the word. Yeah, I'm like all I can say is you did it. You did it again. You know, that's it. You did it. Oops. Yep. Oops. I did it again. <laughs> yep. So, uh, and, and Dave, if people want to, uh, David, if people want to follow you specifically on social media, how can they do that? Uh, go to Tiki Ambassador on Twitter. My, I have a site called itcamefromblog.com. And so my socials are on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter are at itcamefromblog. And uh, the site just got nominated for a Rondo Award uh as as best website of the past year which is an absolute honor and so if that's something you're interested in you could vote you could vote for for myself and you know my site and you know many 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 other choices of all the great work uh that happened this past year uh in in horror and genre uh pop culture and so on so you go to rondoawards.com or rondoaward.com but uh, anyway, Dana, I really appreciate you allowing me to plug certain things. But more importantly, I really appreciate you watching the movie. And Absolutely. I'm so glad that you connected with it. I did. And, and I just want to say congratulations because you, you really did it. And uh, I can't wait 
for uh, my listeners out there to to see this film, so we can get into a little bit more in depth discussion about. Yeah, the movie, yeah. You know? Once you once we're allowed to to spoil things, you know, whatever whenever the threshold of of uh, waiting to spoil things is, and uh, you know, I'm happy to go do a deeper dive at any point. Perfect, perfect. All right, David, we will talk soon, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dana. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.